Hello, this is Jack Tudor of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak to experimental musicians and sound artists about the three records that are important to them. My guest this time is David Grubbs, a musician, a writer, a university professor, a label founder a couple of times over, currently based in Brooklyn. And this is the second time I've interviewed David. The first was for my book on post-rock called Storm Static Sleep. David's association with post-rock is manifold in that he was in a band with members of Slint called Squirrel Bait. He also then got embroiled, that's not the right word, associated with post-rock through the transition of his own band, Bastro, who became known as Gastadel Soul after a point and embarked on this unmooring of rock music, this departure from the fundamental principles of rock music and became this entirely different thing. I won't do them any justice trying to describe them anymore, so please go listen to Gastadel Soul. David since has released a lot of work solo and he's got a new record actually coming out in September called Creep Mission which is coming out on Drag City. So David is really fascinating to speak to. I think he presents some really vivid evocations of sound and his own experiences. So I think you're going to enjoy this one. As always, attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening. That's where I'll put all the notes, all the links that you could want. And please go rate and review this podcast and all that kind of thing to help me conquer the iTunes charts. It's inevitable. So without further ado, here's my conversation with David Grubbs on Crucial Listening. Hello, David. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Well, thank you so much, Jack. Thank you for coming on. Now, as always, I've asked you to assemble a list of three records that you consider to be important to you, um, which you've managed to do even amidst what seems to me to be quite a busy period of assembling various projects in various forms of media, um, one of which is a collaboration with a drummer who... I'm forever fascinated by in terms of what he's doing and the work that he's putting out, and that's Eli Kessler. Um, mm-hmm. So what have you been doing with Eli? I, I see that this collaboration has been kind of going on for a few, a few years now. There's video documentation I see of your performances from like 2014. But what have you do, been doing with Eli, and what is this manifesting in? Well, we've, we've done a number of things. The new release is an album called One and One Less, and it's the first release on Ugly Duckling Press Records. Ugly Duckling Press is a Brooklyn-based publisher that primarily does poetry, some fiction, 
and they're uh, starting a record label to release audio documents of literary works. So Eli and I collaborated on an exhibition at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 2014 called One and One Less, in which we were invited to do a performance in the gallery and to leave some residue of the, the performance in the gallery for a month. And um, we created a performance based on this long poem that I've been working on for a number of years. Uh, I made wall drawings based on it, and we collaborated on a sound installation. And so the LP that's just come out this month on Ugly Duckling Press Records, one side is uh, a 20-minute performance of me reading with Eli playing drums, and th the other side is uh, 20 minutes of documentation of the sound installation. And is the poem in question the very same one that's going to be released in book form now the audience is assembled? Yes, yes. So that uh, I, I have just uh, turned in the corrected, uh, copy-edited manuscript, and that's forthcoming from Duke University Press, which published Records Were in the Landscape, my first book, uh, in April of next year. And it's called Now That the Audience Is Assembled. And I, you know, I one of the reasons why I wanted it to come out in the spring is that for me, one of the best experiences of publishing records or in the landscape was really taking it on the road after the book came out. You know, I'm, I'm used to putting out records and then you tour. Uh, and I like putting out books and touring as well. So uh, hopefully uh, I'll be in the UK next summer, you know, a year from now, uh, doing readings and performances related to now that the audience is assembled. That's great. Uh, what I find really interesting is that you're <clears throat> working with Eli, and I was immediately fascinated with how that would come together. Um, where did the idea arise to to bring Eli into the process of doing these performances? Well, uh, the the invitation from the Contemporary Arts Museum at MIT uh, came directly to me, and I always prefer uh, working with other people, and you know, particularly. Uh, on installation or, or exhibition works. I've, I've done the occasional sound installation, but I don't know, I've, I've found that I, you know, I've enjoyed the process more, I've learned more. It's, you know, the, re the result is, has been better when I've had the opportunity to work with other people. And I've played with Eli uh, in a couple of improvised trios with Spencer Yeh and with Nate Woolley. And I very much liked his uh, sound installation works that I'd seen. And it just seemed, I don't know, you know, improvised settings are so hit and run. You, you know, you show up just in time to plug in and play and, you know, then you have a drink afterwards and then you're done. And uh, so the idea of developing something over the course of several months with him, um, you know, seemed, seemed like a great opportunity to take. I find it interesting, the this combination of the poem and, and percussion as well. I mean, watching it, I was trying to speculate in my head as to what kind of form that dialogue was taking. I mean, there were moments where I felt like Eli was kind of echoing certain syllabic patterns in what you were saying. Um, I mean, does your relationship and execution of the poem is there much variance in how that comes across depending on what Eli is doing? I mean, have you seen much um, change depending on the environment and the circumstances in which you're presenting it? Yeah, I think Eli's 
playing has a has a huge influence on the tempo of the reading and uh, you know what's emphasized in the reading and all I can say is that it occurs with a kind of in the moment soft focus that uh, you know you just hurdle headlong and try to make music out of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> I don't know. The other the other thing is for that performance, I've uh, you know tried different techniques. For that performance, I had a stopwatch and I read for ninety seconds and then I shut up for thirty seconds, um, just you know to uh, guarantee that there would be enough breathing space <laughs> and that it that it you know it wouldn't be suffocated with words. But I think the most recent time we performed it, I was able to slow it down and let there be more breathing room within the performance i must say this poem is book length isn't it essentially it's a it's a, a yeah in the, in the final final version it's a 130 pages the prospect of putting together a poetic work which i i don't know there's a looseness i i feel like in writing long form a text myself i cling to the sort of innate structure of written language like with both hands as a means of dealing with the length but i guess as soon as you get into poetry that becomes less of a sturdy thing to cling on to because it can go in so many different directions i mean how has it been to write such a long poetic work well the 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 way that it that it works on the page is that the page is the basic unit so it might look like a serial poem with uh, you know, comprised of 130 shorter poems. There right. is some enjambment that occurs across a page, but gen generally each page is a kind of self-contained uh, idea or set of images. So uh, literally, I just kind of worked on it page by page. I satisfied myself that a that a page was was completed and polished, and then I moved on. And I also conceive of it as not so different from writing song lyrics. I never really wrote poetry because from the time that I was 13 or 14 years old, I was playing in bands and writing in songs and writing songs. And those kinds of impulses found their form in song lyrics. But song lyrics for me always remained miniatures and they had that weird fate that they had to work in performance. They had to be sung. But, uh, yeah, no, I feel like this is the longest song that I've ever written or the <laughs> longest lyric that I've ever written, uh, you know, by a factor of about 500. <laughs> well, congrats on getting to the final stage of that. So, as I've said, I've um, requested that you bring a selection of three albums that you deem to be important to you. And one question that I've found interesting to ask people and the answer has always differed um so drastically is the process by which you came to the selection um i know that the guests so far have had varying degrees of um torture involved in having it whittled down to three um uh -huh, yeah how was it for you in picking those records uh it was relatively smooth i thought that i didn't want any overlap and that perhaps I would pick three different records that I came to at different uh, times in my life. And so that's what you've ended up with? Yep. 
let's start with the first of the three. I'll let you pick which one. And um, if you'd like to just as well, describe briefly why it's important to you as well. Sure. Uh, why, why don't we take them in the order in which I encountered them? So uh, uh, Circle X's uh, self-titled four-song 12-inch EP from 1979 uh, was a record that I heard probably in 1981 when I was 14 years old. And it's one of these records that, uh, I mean, I guess I would say this about each of the records that I've picked, uh, <laughs> but I think it's so so great that it should be bolted to the side of a spacecraft and sent out, out of our solar system. <laughs> um, I listened to it again this morning. I think it's perfect. There's, you know, there's nothing that I would change about it. I think that it's as wild as the Stooges' funhouse. Um, I don't know. You know, like, I wish that ev everyone in the world could hear this record. And so they were from Louisville, is that right? Yeah. So, you know, I'm always struck by the kind of accidental quality of when people hear certain records, you know, that, that are profoundly meaningful. Uh, you know, what... What would what did it mean to hear this record for me in 1981 as opposed to if I had heard it uh, for the first time two months ago? It really blew my mind. So they're from Louisville, but they'd already left Louisville um, by the time that I heard them. They'd left behind a lot of graffiti, which was uh, incredibly impressive to me as a 14-year-old. They had this very easy, easily spray paintable uh, Circle X logo. That <laughs> You know, you would find spray painted around Louisville or these flyers that they had uh, pasted uh, to walls that looked like they would outlive the walls themselves. <laughs> um, Circle, the people in Circle X were, I don't know, probably 12 or 13 years older than I was. They had all gone to the Louisville School of Art. It's a kind of case in point for, I don't know, uh, a kind of first generation post-punk, I guess you would call it, that comes from... Uh, something other than a major metropolis yeah. that there really aren't obvious reference points. I mean, maybe like the Stooges uh, in terms of the singing and the intensity. I don't know. You know, I remember first hearing it and listening to it with Ned Oldham, who was Will Oldham's older brother, who was playing in hardcore bands around that time. And the only thing that he could refer it to was the very first Meat Puppets EP, which was this really kind of wild record. I think what I was struck by was the kind of in, intense distortion of the guitars, um, the fact that it was two guitars and there was no bass, so that, that even in the middle of all of this noise, there's a lot of space happening. And when I was listening to it this morning, I was thinking uh, about the fact that in Gastrodol Del Sol and when I was in the Red Crayola, generally there was not a bass player and um, that there's something very satisfying about, you know, very dense things happening with the guitars, very dense things happening with the drums, uh, and this space between them, you know, that, that you don't have the, the bass make, making logical sense of everything, you know. Yeah. You know, getting rid of the bass in a punk band is a little bit like Ornette Coleman getting rid of the piano uh, <laughs> in a jazz quartet. Uh, you know, that it becomes much more ambiguous or, you know, the chord changes really aren't even part of the program. Yeah, I guess it's like an orientation device, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So reading the responses to this material, I mean, I, I've had to sort of scrimp and um, 
salvage bits from YouTube and around the net to to listen to this and obviously that comes with the comments of people listening to it um most of whom were like 1979 seriously uh, they, I, I mean looking at it from say my perspective as someone who wasn't around at that time it seems earlier than the bulk of material that perhaps this would have been considered to share kinship um, I mean, was that the, it sounds from what you've said so far and the very sparse reference points that that was the case at the time when you first heard it as well. I mean, did, was it something that kind of jutted out from uh, your listening and your musical references elsewhere? Yeah, it was absolutely wild. I mean, the uh, tr- you know, trying to make sense of this in the context of something like The Clashes, Give Them Enough Rope, which had, you know, I probably heard for the first time right, right around the same time. Give Him Enough Rope was produced by Sandy Perlman, who produced Blue, Blue Oyster Cult. And it's, you know, like it's a very smooth, well-produced, well-played rock album. And uh, at that time, I, I was reading things like Rolling Stone magazine, which was, there were a number of writers like Real Marcus who were trying to make the argument that the corrosive, critical, anarchic qualities of the wildest music from the late 60s was finding resonance in groups like the Gang of Four and the Clash. But I heard those record, the Gang of Four and the Clash as, as being very polished productions, played extremely well, you know, virtuosic in their own weird way. Um, and then I heard something like Circle X, which really just had this quality of something hurled at a wall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it still sounds totally wild to me. I don't know. I, I, you know, was cranking it this morning. I was loving it. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like they were probably people, you know, uh, an art school band, people who picked up instruments that uh, electric guitar and microphone and drum kit were just tools and, and maybe not even, you know, the tools that they were born to to play, you know, it was just something that they picked up at a particular point in time. When I first heard them, they had left Louisville in the dust, which was, as I say, deeply impressive. You know, like if you come from a medium-sized city and people the generation, artists the generation in front of you, you know, by words and deeds signify, we need to get the hell out of here and you need to get the hell out of here. (laughs) Uh, That's really impressive. And they, they had moved also kind of insanely to Dijon, France, uh, where this album was recorded, what? Uh, and and uh, yeah, they were basically they were based in France for a little while, and then they moved to New York City, which you know, <laughs> which it's a little more commonsensical. But yeah, they moved to France. I don't know. You know, I think that they thought that their peers, as I say, were probably you know things like the Stooges, but also uh, Rimbaud and Herman Nitsch. When I was listening to it this morning, I was thinking there's a Herman Nitsch recording from the late seventies in which uh, there's a German punk band that, that's part of one of these actions. And uh, that's probably the closest thing that I can think of to compare, you know, sonically, the Circle X record. Wow. It's... If I were listening to this podcast, man, I would want to hear this thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're giving it a good sell, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Dijon thing's insane because I've read a couple of biographies and they just say Louisville, then New York. So I wonder if people, 
dismiss that as a sort of Wikipedia Chinese whisper um, that right. wasn't actually true and just went, no, that can't be right. That's... No, I think they, must, they <laughs> met someone maybe in New York who uh, convinced them that he would be their manager and they should move to Dijon, France with him. <laughs> wow. Yeah. A diversion. And you actually uh, re-released this record on a label that you have with Jim O'Rourke? Yes, called Dexter's Cigar. So when yeah, you know, when we had the opportunity to to put together a reissue label for Drag City, this was really at the top of our list. Did you touch base with the the guys themselves about re releasing this this record and how how did they feel about it coming back out again? Yeah, I got in touch with with uh, Rick Latandra and Tony Panati, uh, who were two of the four members. The the group they're actually playing a reunion show this fall, um, but they they pretty much ceased to exist when Bruce Witsip, who was one of the founders, died in in 1995. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, Rick and Tony, what what can I say? Uh, you know, like they're 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 in it to win it. They're you know they're uh, just. Uh, I don't know how do I how do I want to describe it? You know, they are who they are, and uh, you know, and proudly so. <laughs> and uh, did you ever get a chance to see them perform live? No, ne- never did. Which, which is, I, I'm sure, one of the reasons why the record looms so large in my imagination. I mean, think mm. think of all of these bands that you saw. That even if it was a good gig, some of the mystery was dispelled by seeing you know who does what and how. If I could get your second important record, that would be wonderful. Okay. How about Tony Conrad's 10 Years Alive on the Infinite Plane, which interestingly was only commercially released uh, within the last month. Yeah. Um, But in 1994, I think, Tony came to Chicago at uh, the invitation of Jim O'Rourke and Table of the Elements Records and brought with him... Uh, a number of recordings, unreleased recordings, one of which was a cassette of this piece, 10 Years Alive on the Infinite Plane, um, which was recorded in 1972 at the Kitchen in a trio with Tony playing violin, Reese Chatham playing long-stringed instrument, and Laurie Spiegel playing uh, electric bass, this kind of adapted electric bass. And um, when Tony came to Chicago, we recorded a record called Slapping Pythagoras, that Jim produced, uh, that I played on, a bunch of our friends played on. And, you know, Tony passed away about a year and a half ago, and he's really been on my mind. So I've been, you know, thinking about Tony's music, and there have been a number of memorial events, so I've really spent a lot of time with friends of friends and um, kind of comparing notes and comparing the stories. So, uh, yeah, I've really lived inside 10 Years Alive on the Infinite Plane for the last couple of months. I've probably listened to that recently more than anything else. 
Um, and Tony had brought a recording of it to Chicago because he thought that that would be an easy thing uh, to perform live. Slapping Pythagoras was this very elaborate uh, recording with six, uh, you know, section of six bowed electric guitars and lots of overdubs and things like that. But uh, Ten Years Alive was performed very easily uh, by a trio. So we did that a number of times with uh, Jim playing electric bass and me playing the long stringed instrument and Tony playing violin. We made a recording of it in 1994. And there's actually a really beautifully shot uh, film of it. I think also from nineteen uh, from nineteen ninety six, from two years later, and some of that is in Tyler Hubby's Tony Conrad documentary. But anyway, it's it's one of these pieces that just you know uh, I I can't imagine getting tired of it because it it has it already begins with this sort of like exhausted you know uh, existence on the infinite plane kind of feel about it. The, the one thing that I'll say about the piece from Tony's instructions for Jim and me for playing it is that, so whoever's playing the electric bass, there's a steady pulse. It's only one note for, for the entire 90-minute performance. And the long-stringed instrument is a monochord that Tony uh, built. It looks a little bit like a uh, ski, like a downhill ski, with two strings on it and, a, and two guitar pickups and you play it with a slide. And with the slide, you create upward-moving glissandi that always die, always fade out uh, before you arrive at this central pitch that the bass is pulsing on. So it's like you're, you know, it's this Sisyphean uh, result where you're always moving towards the central point and never arriving there. And then uh, if you feel that the time is right in the second half of the piece, after 45 minutes, you're permitted to do downward moving slides. But that was always a really tough decision for me to make. <laughs> you know, like, when, when do you reverse course? Yeah. In, in, fa- in fact, in this, in this long poem, and now that the audience is assembled, there, there's a long kind of reflection on a, a performance, you know, wh- where the composer sort of says like, you know, and now you can, deviate from the score and people are really freaked out. It's like, I don't know, you know, like, is the time (laughs) right? Yeah. Hearing you describe it and the relationship between that bass and the long string instrument, I actually went on a run to this album the other day and it was one of the worst runs I've ever done. And I think, Oh no, I thought you were going to say the bet that you ran for 90 minutes straight. I think the lethargy of, uh, not lethargy. Oh. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's an atmospheric yeah, yeah. imposition there that's just like, just give up. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, and obviously the music itself is is wonderful, but I did find this probably out of everything I've heard from Tony, the, um, the most difficult, I think, the most uncomfortable record that I've listened to. And because actually a couple of episodes back, I had Lassa Morag on oh. the podcast yeah. who picked... Tony's collaboration with Faust as one of his records. That's much easier to run to, and I could definitely yeah. go forever with that one. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a much more triumphant performance. <laughs> this is a much more stoic one. Yeah. And I read an essay that you wrote, I think, last year uh, about your experiences with Tony and what I found so amazing. Um, I put on a screening of the documentary 
uh, earlier on, no, late last year. And there were so many stories and so many insights that I picked up from in that. Listening mm-hmm. to Lasser talk about his experiences with Tony was again so enlightening and reading your essay and um, finding out even more wonderful anecdotes about mm. him is it's just been an absolute delight i mean what what was he what was it like working with him on slapping pythagoras and on these performances how did you find him as a as a collaborator were you at ease or um what was the vibe <laughs> no, like <laughs> no, we were on our, we were on our toes you know <laughs> it, it was sort of like uh having the world's funniest smartest college professor you know who you'd you know he'd have everyone laughing and then the next minute he would say something that would just be so difficult to to even make sense of, uh, you know, that, uh, yes, it, it was this kind of hilarious, almost like intellectually slapstick experience <laughs> of uh, being thrown off balance again and again and again. <laughs> I don't know. He was just so fucking brilliant, but also so anti-authoritarian and so funny. I mean, all such a... Uh, such a kind of like crazed creative critical mind no you couldn't stop him he uh he he really was uh you know in all likelihood the the in terms of sheer kind of brain power the most brilliant person i might ever have the opportunity to meet and he just used that power for good uh but you know because he was so goddamn funny and so weird i loved him yeah amazing amazing person but but also, I mean, when he showed up in Chicago in 1994, we had no idea what to expect. It wasn't like we'd seen a documentary film about him to prepare us for it, you know, or a book about him to prepare us for it. He just fucking showed up and, you know, it was like, who is this weird, you know, crazy, brilliant guy? And, of course, he was up for anything. Uh, so, you know, like... Smog is playing at Lounge Acts. All right, take Tony good to go see Smog, you know, and then he embarrasses everybody by dancing like a crazy person. <laughs> uh, you know, there's there's an Edison uh, short, like one of the first films, is about taking Uncle So and So to the movies, uh, and it's like uh, this comedy, like this one shot comedy about. Uh, taking the crazy uncle to the movies and the gag is that the crazy uncle thinks that it's all real so you know like when people are pulling out pistols on the screen like in a western like he pulls out his gun and you know like when the chorus line starts up you know like he starts dancing and things like that and you know eventually he like you know knocks down the screen and that was kind of what uh, hanging out with Tony was like <laughs> I also remember this hilarious interview in 1996 for alternative press which was like a monthly music magazine when the table of the elements atrium festival was happening and it was like a group interview and everyone seemed so serious about like talking about you know what was important in their music jim and i were you know like very serious about gastro del sol or bernhard gunter was very serious about his music and all that tony would talk about was like you know uh Chicago seems very bike accessible. And if you move to Chicago, you didn't have to have a car and that that would be great for the environment. And, you know, like he was very focused on like, you know, unlike Buffalo, you know, Chicago really was a city where you didn't have to have an automobile. (laughs) (laughs) 
Wow. Um, I think, what was it I read? Uh, something really, that really struck me recently was his method for picking out clothing was to select items that he couldn't understand the purpose of. Yes. Which is so nice and so liberated. <laughs> I need to be very clear on the purpose of my clothing if I need to buy it. So that's the gulf yeah. between Tony and I. Um. Yeah. Yeah. For some of the performances around the memorials, his widow page distributed a lot of his clothing. So I, I now have a lime green sports jacket and these lime green striped socks. Oh, but, wow. Yeah. I'll send you a photo of me in the in the lime green sports jacket. There's a photo, did you say? Yeah, I will. I'll, I'll, I'll forward that to you. Please do. That's going in the show notes. Um, yeah, yeah. I didn't realize you were involved in Slapping Pythagoras. I've listened to that record numerous times. And then during my research today, I was like, oh, my God, um, I can't believe that I didn't realize this before. And in fact... The I, I don't think I'd ever done any background on, on that record. I just listened and suddenly there was this whole host of artists that I that I liked that were involved in the production of this piece. Um and so I'm fascinated to know from you the experience of recording that piece and being on the inside of that sound rather than on the end that I am, which, you know, is just listening to the final product. What was it like being in the room with the sound of slapping Pythagoras? Well, the first thing that Tony did was put together this group of six guitarists bowing electric guitars, and he gave us really rudimentary uh, rhythmic notation. He tuned everyone's guitars. He tuned the guitars to the noisiest amplifier in the room, so he just took a 60-cycle hum and tuned all the instruments. And I think he was really disappointed at... uh, our pathetic musical skills and how bad we were at reading notation and how shitty our poetic skills. You know, <laughs> it was me and Jim and Kevin Drum and a couple of other people. And I think he he really thought like you know I I wanted real musicians for the you know he was fine with it, but I think he was a little taken aback at uh, yeah you know because he he had a real musical training as did Jim. Um, but uh, the rest of us kind of like rock guitar players, I think he was like, you guys are utterly abject and talentless. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and still he rolled with it. And I don't know, he just, uh, he was kind of making up stuff on the fly. You know, at a certain point, he decided that there should be a percussion track. So I play percussion on it. There was one take, it's like a 10 minute section where I play uh, a, a pillow with with Steve Albini's baseball glove uh, and a pint, an empty pint beer glass with a rolled up guitar cable because he wanted a low sound and a high sound. So it just goes thud, ping, thud, ping for like 10 minutes.
if I could have uh, your final important record, please, David. Yeah, the third the third one is Luke Ferrari's Prescaria Number no. One, um, which was released on Deutsche Grammophon in the early 1970s. The piece is dated 67 to 70. And I guess I've also been thinking about Luke Ferrari a lot. Luke Ferrari died, my God, how long ago now? What year is this? Did he die? Oh, I don't know. Eight years ago? Nine years ago? It's weird, because the day before we were recording this uh, interview, Pierre Henry, who was Mm. uh, probably the same age as Luke and like an, an old associate of Luke's passed away yesterday. But I've been thinking about Luke a lot recently because his inspiration and some of his ideas figure into this long poem. And there's a, there's a character who's a, who's somewhat Luke Ferrari like, or who at least speaks like Luke in the poem. And uh, yeah, so I thought about Prescaria number one, which is this classic of field recording. That's a very ambiguous piece that presents itself as just um, a microphone hung out the window uh, overlooking a beach in uh, Yugoslavia in the late 1960s. And so it's the sound of daybreak on the beach. And yet it's at very minimum uh, probably five or six or seven hours of, uh, of the course of one day uh, collapsed into a 20-minute edited recording, and it may be a number of, of days um, and Luke was very mischievous and funny and cagey about that. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a piece that really kind of like broke things wide open in terms of music concrete and that tradition in the prior to Prescarian or, you know, even prior to a lot of works of his just prior, just before that, like music promenade, the ideal of music concrete had been to, uh, transform the concrete source such that you don't recognize the original source, right? That you're, as a listener, mentally cut off from the image of, of the uh, source of the sound. And Prescarian, I think a lot of people thought it was a kind of Dada prank at the time, but I don't know. It's one of these things that I come back to at least once a year. And, um, it's really, it's, I feel like it's never sounded more musical and more structured and that the proportions among the sections are just right. And I don't know. I, it, 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 it's one, it's one of these pieces that I keep coming back to because it seems so simple. It's probably seems so simple that a lot of people read about it and think like, got it. Don't need to hear that. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I don't know. Like it's uh, it's really kind of a riddle for me, and and Luke was one of these people who I just you know uh, respected so much and enjoyed any opportunity that I had to spend time with him. And as I say, because of this writing project, he's been very much on my mind. So Prescarian, uh, you know, popped to the fore. How did you end up meeting Luke, and when did you spend time with him? Uh, I first met him uh, in 1997. I was teaching at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago in the sound department, and I was a, a big fan of his work. I think that Jim had met him once in Paris uh, at a uh, an Inajurum concert, and uh, but yeah, I was a died in the wool fan. And when I was teaching at the School of the Art Institute, it was this period where 
I think the thicket had thicket had just come out. It's my first solo record. Uh, so I was te- teaching and touring at the same time. So I would teach something like three days a week and then be gone four days a week. And it was a total kind of breakneck uh, period. And I, uh, in terms of scheduling, lived very dangerously where, for example, if I taught at noon on a Monday, I frequently was flying back from gigs on Monday morning and just going from the airport directly to go teach. Oh, my God. You know, because I was 29 years old. Yeah. <laughs> it just seemed like the thing to do at the time. And uh, so one of these days I rolled in, you know, from wherever, Winnipeg, at 11.30 in the morning, a half an hour before I was supposed to teach. And they said something like, you know, didn't you get the email? You didn't respond to the email. You know, Luke Ferrari is uh, a guest in residence. Um, I guess this was before social media. And you're supposed to introduce him and you're supposed to show him around. I was like, what? Uh, (laughs) Oh, my God. So, so, uh, yeah. So, you know, like he really kind of appeared out of the blue. And so I spent a couple of days with him, squiring him around to, you know, various talks and things like that in Chicago and just totally hit it off with him. He was very patient because, you know, my French was bad and his English, his English got much, much better. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a little bit of a challenge to understand one another at the very beginning, but I reissued a number of his recordings. Every time I played in Paris, he and his wife Brunhild would come to the shows and, I uh, played on a program of his in Chicago. I think I did, that was just the one time, probably around 2000 or 2001. Um, but anyway, he, you know, uh, he was somebody who I was just very, very happy to, uh, you know, to be able to observe working or to, to, to have a conversation with him. Yeah, this is, I have to confess, the first time I've actually listened to this piece was on the back of you recommending it for this. Uh Uh-huh. Which was really interesting because I'm coming into this having heard so much field recording now um, and was really struck by, I think, what you've already said. There's like a composition, like a structure which is really satisfying and like a compositional depth. At one point, I just was... um, very intently observing just the placement of all of the sounds together and was like, this is just so nice. Yeah. There's something really lovely about it. Um, I see you did a performance of some of Luke's pieces. I don't know how often you've done this, but one instance I found was in 2010 with Ensemble Pomplamus. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that vaguely right. So Uh how was the experience of actually uh, performing some of Luke's pieces? Uh, terrific. So the, the main piece that I performed of Luke's is Tautologos 3, which I did in Chicago with an, an ensemble that included Luke. Uh, did it in Japan a couple of years after that, and then in Chicago, uh, in New York with Ensemble Pomplamus. And Tautologos 3 is a text score that's just a series of instructions, and the most basic one is to, to come prepared with a gesture, uh, that you can replicate and that you repeat uh, kind of on a loop. You determine the the length of the silence between iterations of the gesture. And as it comes into contact or collision with other gestures, you slowly transform it. And uh, it's, it's meant to mirror that kind of uh, 
sense of day in day out having the same uh, the same routine uh, that's just a little bit different uh, from day to day that you know you run into the same person four out of five days in a row it's a piece that I think comes out of and encourages reflection on larger loops within one's life and uh, you know habit and deviation from habit I don't know. For for me, it's a it's a very again like a very kind of tremendously philosophical piece. Just in terms of the instructions, I mean, it's really basic. You you know, you put together an ensemble. It shouldn't be you know a solo or a duo or even a trio performance. I think like six or more players is good, and each person figures out a different length of their loop. And at least at the beginning, it's helpful to perform it with with watches visible. And you, you know, you do your gesture and you repeat it 25 seconds later or 19 seconds later or however many seconds you've agreed upon um, as the rest within your loop. And then it ultimately becomes an improvisation, but it's a very disciplined improvisation as you allow these kinds of collisions. You know, maybe, maybe uh, your gesture is superimposed atop someone else's and it makes you change the dynamics of it. Or, you know, you choose to, to change a pitch or, you know, some aspect of the voicing or, but I mean, it's, it's a piece that could be uh, for movement alone. It could be for actor, you know, like the, the score is, is very clear about this, that, that it's a, a tremendously broad open-ended tool. And how do you interact with those kind of things? Because I guess compared to, a, say, a full-on free improvisation with no basis at all, I wonder if there's some something nice about having the first paving slab laid down for you and being like, okay, hop on this and then you're away. Or Yeah, I'm no, this come-prepared aspect... You know, but it's just a kernel. You know, it, it's it's just it's just a small fragment that that you come prepared with. It could be most anything, um, but you should just be able to repeat it exactly, and then in a kind of you know you should have control over sufficient control over your instrument that um, you know that you can change it very very gradually. Right. You know. It, it shouldn't be some, you know, impossible sound sculpture thing that makes a different sound every time you do it, you know, or I shouldn't pick up a trumpet, you know, given the fact that I don't play the trumpet <laughs> and would, you know, would have a hard time reproducing the same thing and slowly and slowly transforming it. And one more question I wanted to bring it back around um, to the record you've picked. Press Rian, is that... Uh-huh. Is, is that is that the pronunciation? Pre- it's close, Pre- isn't Presca it? Rian. Presca yeah. Rian, thanks. I mean, I think you've um, spoken about why this record stands out for you as a piece of field recording. Um, and I imagine, like myself, you've heard so much field recording since, um, and probably prior. Uh, and maybe you've already answered this question, but why... Is this the piece that you return to year after year as a piece of field recording that doesn't have that much editing applied to well, it does have editing applied to it, obviously, but feels comparatively quite untouched to a lot of, as you say, music concrete stuff. Why yeah. is this the recording that you return to? I think b- 
both because uh, it it does have that quality of a field recording of something happened upon almost by chance, and yet through its compression of time, it feels very consequent and very purposeful, and also that there's that there's something about I. I remember listening listening to a recording of South Indian music with Jim O'Rourke around the time that Castor Del Sol started, where he said something like that he has a few recordings of traditional Indian music and he listens to them over and over again. Because he, he thought that rather than casting a wide net, I think this is a really interesting idea, that, that casting a wide net rather than hearing you know hundreds of different recordings of traditional Indian music, he felt that he would get closer to what was happening in it by listening to the same one again and again and again, and and really kind of learning it from the inside. And I think that's a little bit of my attitude about Prescurian, you know, that that I could uh, certainly never have to, I could listen to a lot of field recordings and never have to listen to the same one twice. And yet that there's, that there's really something to say about having selected one that you re- revisit on a regular basis. Do you feel any increased pertinence of that right now? Because it kind of links in with something I've been thinking a lot about in that I am now so stranded in thoughts of not listening to quote unquote the right one when I have free access to listen to any number and it's very tempting to become overly omnivorous to the point where you're ultimately consuming or tasting nothing as you're shoveling it down. Yeah, do, yeah. Do you feel any greater attachment to that sentiment right now in our current climate? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I feel like as a listener, I have to be a little more active in my choosing of uh, the relatively limited amount of time that. I have, or that anyone has, uh, to selecting what you listen to. I mean, there's there's the incredible uh, sense of listening to the first something for the first time, but also, I don't know, you know, like uh, I mean, this is kind of what records are in the landscape is about that, you know, that there's something to be said about those repeated listens and those repeated listens at different points in the in the in the time span or the life of the listener that, uh, yeah, for me, it's not, it's not only about first listen is the best listen, but in answer to your question, I think that it does have to, that at the present moment, it does require a lot more, you know, discipline or active, active choice, uh, you know, active selection on the, on the part of the listener rather than just like, um, you know, allowing the next thing in your SoundCloud feed to to play. Yeah, I worry about the mechanic that this autoplay thing maybe will spawn within my own head, and maybe I can feel it a little bit that listening becomes the anticipation of the next experience rather than an occupation with current listening. Um, yeah, it troubles me deeply, but yeah. um, I don't know. My, you know experience of SoundCloud is is that, you know, a new track appears, but that I listen to, you know, I tend to listen to something twice, 
three or four times. And I, I don't know the, to me, that's part of the experience of recorded sound of, you know, those multiple listens. Well, David, this has been excellent. Really appreciate you coming on to share these records and the uh, experiences you have attributed to them as well. Um, Absolutely. My pleasure. If people want to check out um, your own projects and what you're up to, where's best for them to be headed? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> Go to the fucking record store. No, uh, I, you know... I make records for Drag City, which is notoriously tight about sharing their stuff. The next record of mine is a record called Creep Mission, um, which comes out on September 22nd. I don't know. You know people, <laughs> people will find things within like five seconds. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, don't, I don't have a preferred like, you know, like, please visit my, you know, such and such page. In general, I... I make albums. I do tend to have this sort of like temporal sweet spot of like 35 minutes. That's, you know, every couple of years I release 35 minutes of music <laughs> and, um, and that works for me. So, I mean, I like for people to experience things as albums. Um, so yeah, find, find those. Great. I'll encourage them to do that. Lass's answer was don't listen to me. Go listen to Tony Conrad instead. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> Which is the alternative, I guess. Well, once again, David, thank you so much. And to everyone listening, I'll see you very soon. <laughs>